Hebrews Bible Study Number 15, Melchizedek Overview and Further Questions, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord, the entirety of Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, 
to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. We spent a long time going over how the author of Hebrews makes the case that one ought to go deeper in their faith, while never abandoning nor relaying the foundation of basic, pure doctrine. The intention he has is that one has a stronger faith when they learn to have a deeper faith. Thus far, we have attempted dutifully to learn these deeper matters. We have gone into the mechanics of typology, the comparison between the priests of Levi and the Melchizedek priesthood, and the law-gospel dynamic presented by the ordination of Christ to the latter. As the Levitical priesthood and Old Covenant were functions of law, and the priests only able to intercede while still alive in this mortal coil, an eternal priest who was born separate from Levi was necessary to both establish a new covenant and continue for eternity for intercession. However, if we see these two points, covenant and priesthood, as the only doctrine to be gleaned from the passage, we risk missing out on some of the deeper things to which the author of Hebrews may be pointing. Thus, it is worth another look and examination. Following this introduction are some observations which may prove fruitful in other biblical study series. And it goes without saying, given some of the more speculatory aspects of this recording, it will be informal. The PDF on verylutheran.biz will only be of so much help. As we saw with chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is not to be seen without an eye towards chiasm. And this passage is certainly no different. In the PDF on verylutheran.biz, I have proposed a chiastic structure for all of chapter 7. Verses 1 through 3 speak of the background and qualities of Melchizedek. Verses 26 through 28 speak of the qualities of Christ. Verses 4 through 10 speak of Melchizedek as superior to Levi, and verses 23 through 25 speak of Christ's priesthood as superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Verses 11 through 14 speak of the insufficiency of the Old Covenant, whereas it only takes verse 22 to say directly that Christ guarantees a better covenant. Thus, Verses 15 through 21, which form its own chiasm in miniature, present a central thesis. Christ's priesthood is established to save us because the law cannot save. So verses 15 through 21 demonstrate the teleological why of the Melchizedek subject. The old covenant was not working. Christ was ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood in order to justify the establishment of a better covenant and priesthood. But this raises the question, why have the old covenant or the Mosaic law in the first place when Melchizedek demonstrates the existence of a different community which worshipped the true God before Abraham was given the covenant? Rephrase. 
If Melchizedek's priesthood was satisfactory, why have Abrahamic or Mosaic covenants at all? Now, one might opine that there is an ethnic component over this, since Melchizedek did not have a genealogy. Perhaps this means that his priesthood and religious structure would not have sufficed to fulfill the prophecies given by Noah regarding Shem. In Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 25, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And that might suggest that salvation had to come out of the loins of that son Shem. If Melchizedek was a Japhethite or descendant of Ham, then while his congregation in Salem may have been sanctified, it could not bring salvation to all the peoples of the world as was promised to come through Abraham's line in Genesis 12 verse 3. However, while this point has explanatory power, it leaves open the question of whether or not Noah's pronouncement was truly a prophecy or merely the angry reassignment of inheritance by a man with a hangover. After all, verse 24 of Genesis chapter 9 says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. There is an element of a man who had just sinfully gotten drunk, woke up, and was very angry. There is no formulation like the other Old Testament prophets that say, Thus saith the Lord. And there is no general historical basis for claiming that everything he promised here came true. Now, to be fair, Martin Luther and some other reformers identified Melchizedek as Shem himself. Indeed, this would serve as a very powerful explainer. If Melchizedek is Shem, and the term Melchizedek is merely a title, you know, king of righteousness, right? If that is the case, then, well, that explains where Melchizedek got his faith in the one true God, and why he would be allowed to be the priest of God Most High, being Noah's firstborn and having received that blessing from Noah. Shem, in that case, serves in a prophetic priestly role, in such fashion as to assist Abraham along in the plan of salvation. His ministry would be something of a placeholder, not an independent church body from God's plan. But even the reformer and the church fathers that concurred with him would have to admit that this is purely speculation. After all, the author of Hebrews says quite blatantly that the man had no genealogy, that we aren't supposed to know who his real father is, whether that is Noah or whether that is somebody else. And thus it opens up the possibility that indeed God had a plan of salvation for Melchizedek and his people that did not involve the line of Shem. He very well may have been a Japhethite 
or less likely, a Canaanite of some stripe, a Hamite perhaps, though those latter two options are very much less likely. At the end of the day, this becomes a superfluous question for us to ask. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no way to return to Melchizedek's way of doing things or however his ministry functioned. There is no need to go on some archaeological expedition to try to find out where the Melchizedek priesthood in the Old Testament went, who they were comprised of, etc., and so forth. There's simply no point. You are saved by the blood of Christ who descends from the tribe of Judah according to the line of David, which means that he is an Israelite of Israelites, our king and our God. However, there is a question regarding lineage here that is also present regarding Levi. Verse 9 says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, the Lutheran study Bible is very, very forthright here. It's not even, may even say, it is literally the father of all Israelite priests paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the greater priest, through his ancestor Abraham. And that leads us to a question of genealogical merit. Exodus chapter 20 in the latter half of verse 5 onward says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. We understand that visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God. The children are not punished for what their forefather did, but they often repeat the same sins. The apple does not fall far from the tree. That is the sense of the text here in Exodus 20. However, note that there is a little bit of ambiguity. I read from the alternate translation saying that God shows his steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments, as opposed to the normative translation, which says that God keeps his steadfast love for thousands who love him and keep his commandments. There are two proposed translations regarding Exodus chapter 20 verses 5 and 6 over thousandth generation or thousands. However, Hebrews chapter 7 credits Levi for tithing when it was actually his father who tithed to Melchizedek, which means that Abraham's meritorious work was credited to Levi. To be certain, this is not meritorious in terms of salvation. We understand that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. However, on the material plane where we live, the Coram Mundo understanding of it presented here is that indeed your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents' good works 
may be accredited to you for blessing and for consequences regarding the way you live. Remember that the law is primarily executed here in the material world. So too are the covenants given to Abraham and to Moses and even to Aaron and his sons. In fact, we might even say that the meritorious faith and good works of Father Abraham were accredited to the children of Israel, leading to their preservation in the wilderness. It is on account of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this nation had persevered and survived in the wilderness. Now, it is understandable that we ought to be a little cagey about this doctrine, that God would say, I'm going to visit the sins upon those who hate me and their children for three or four generations, but for those who love me, there is blessing and steadfast love unto the thousandth generation after them. Now, they're not going to be saved, necessarily. They're not necessarily going to have eternal life because of the love and commandment following of their ancestor. But there is something good that comes from a man who is doing good works for the sake of his children. I want to serve the Lord my God out of gratefulness for everything our Lord Jesus has done for me. Yes, this is the third use of the law. But in addition to that, if God has said, yes, Levi was accredited with the tithing that Abraham did towards Melchizedek, then it could be motivating for me to say that I do good works in the hopes that God blesses my children on account of that here in this world. It's speculation, but it is some food for thought. Now, with that, I invite everybody listening. Do you have speculations over Hebrews chapter 7? I'd like to continue this vein of thought here and make it a discussion for everybody in the Catacomb Synod or anybody that's listening to Very Lutheran Project materials. If you have something you're noticing in Hebrews chapter 7 or a question regarding the history and the figures given in the history here, Please send me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com and let's get a dialogue going. If I don't receive any by next Thursday or so, I'll go ahead and make a Bible study for Hebrews chapter 8. We'll begin to move on from Melchizedek. But otherwise, I am more than happy to start up a dialogue on this. Please send me a message. Let's get a discussion going. Or comment on the SoundCloud recording. It's all good by me. But until then, we will catch you all next week for either further deep dives on Melchizedek or, well, we move on to Hebrews chapter 8. Until then, the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.